Welcome, everyone, to the Radical Reverend Show. It's a great show today, I have to say. You could be listening on the radio, uh, and welcome uh, to CIET 89.5 FM, or you could be listening on podcasts, so iTunes, SoundCloud, whatever, wherever. Um, we're glad you're there. So first up, I'm going to be talking to uh, an old friend, Arash Azizi, who is the author of The Shadow Commander, Soleimani, The U.S. and Iran's Global Ambitions. Really interesting book. Uh, we're, we're going to be talking to him at length uh, next. And then for the second part of the show, we're getting caught up with Skylar Williams. You might remember Skylar. He is one of the leaders of 1492 Lambac Lane, uh, the occupation by First Nations Indigenous just in the Caledonia area. They've been at it for 220 days now. They've been tasered. They've been shot at. Uh, they're in the court system, but they're still there on their land. So uh, we're going to be talking to him, getting an update about how that occupation is going. First up, however, I'm delighted to have Arash on the show. Welcome, Arash, to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much for having me, Comrade Reverend, as I like to call you. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so uh, just a, an anecdote about meeting Arash uh, when I was in political life at Queen's Park. The last place I ever thought that I would see this particular socialist, uh, Arash Azizi, was at a cocktail party at Lieutenant Governor's uh, mansion, it's called. She, uh, she doesn't live there anymore, but um, certainly was in the quarters. And there he was. Um, what were you doing there, Arash? <laughs> I think there was a journalistic function for, um, uh, I think it was something to do with um, Iranians, uh, they were, I mean, they were like, they were giving awards to some people, including some Iranian Canadians. So I think I was there to cover that, uh, you know, great momentum. But you should have run for a speaker so we could have had, you know, great socialist parties at the Queen's Park. But uh, that well, well I did, I did win for a speaker, but of course I would never be elected because, you know, <laughs> nobody would vote for me. But I did run, I did run. And I was deputy speaker. I was deputy speaker for a while. Um, uh, so it just, it, you know, a little bit of background on Arash. Arash is and was a journalist um, and has written for New York Times, Washington Post, Daily Beast, Toronto Star, Jacobin and several and also done some translations, book length translations. And right now he's a New Yorker, uh, been many places, but a New Yorker and at NYU just finishing up his doctorate. And I asked him why this book, which is a major work would not count as a doctorate but you know academics he said so let's uh let's talk about you arash uh you grew up in iran talk about that experience and and maybe you know segue a little bit into the arab spring because that was certainly a historic moment that the world took notice of so what was that like what was growing up in iran like for you so I grew up in Iran and the Islamic Republic of Iran. I was born in 1988. So I was, I grew up in the, I basically was born in the last months, if you will, of the Iran-Iraq war, which was a formative time for the region in the 1980s. And, and I grew up in the 90s and 2000s. And, uh, you know, this was, uh, you know, Iran has a very repressive regime, you know, that, that really restricted us. But of course, there was also an active resistance always against it. So I was really, I, uh, you know, grew up as part of a really, wonderful really community of young people who were interested in arts and music and politics and Marxism and uh, so you know I you know I have very fond memories of my growing up and uh, um, and in before Arab Spring you know we like to say we are you know we're the first in most things before Arab Spring we had the 2009 Green Movement in Iran 
which really was a mass movement against the rigged elections um, of, of that year in Iran. And, uh, you know, they were the precursor to Arab Spring. I arrived in Canada um, shortly before the Arab Spring, which, which started in 2011 and also had its own effects uh, on Iran. But I would say that, yeah, those, those few years, 2011, of course, there was Arab Spring, but also Occupy Wall Street. Then you had the movement in Wisconsin. You had um, sort of mass movement in Israel for social justice, you know, everywhere in the world, actually in Russia also um, in the end of that year. So it was really a time where you know, a lot of young people in the Middle East and around the world, you know, um, really stood for revolutionary changes and thought that big things are possible. Um, of course, we, in, in practice, we tend, it turned out that things are, you know, a little bit more difficult than we imagined, but there were definitely memorable years, uh, you know, for ones, I don't know, late teen, early 20s, I guess. Yeah, now, uh, you know, you had the Shah, um, and then the shift happened. Um, was that not a time, um, and talk about that time, when there was incredible hope for actually a revolutionary government, um, but not a fundamentalist religious one. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's fascinating that you ask this thing, these two things back, back and back, because they really are related. The 1979 revolution in Iran came on the back of, of course, the 60s, right? And that's actually what I try to do in my doctoral work to show that it was sort of the end of the 60s. Um, the long decades of 60s, you know, now maybe mostly known for, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but they also included very serious uh, leftist movements. You were kind of a part of it, I guess, <laughs> in Canada at the time. So the 79 was the end of that. And many people had hoped that indeed the revolution in Iran will bring um, a new emancipatory liberatory model. Unfortunately, the wide coalition of nationalists, um, uh, liberals, and you know, Islamists who had made the revolution in 79, um, uh, where after, uh, after the revolution was victorious and the Shah was thrown out in 79, um, an Islamic Republic was founded by Ayatollah Khomeini that, that instituted a fundamentalist, um, uh, highly conservative and very repressive and murderous um, Islamic Republic. And mind you, this was really kind of the first Islamic Republic in the modern era. So uh, many people who were Islamists before, they had, you know, they had different ideas about what Islam and government would mean, um, but they were not necessarily these sort of repressive um, fundamentalist visions. Um, you know, there were many progressive uh, people who had the progressive ideas of how to bring religion in politics. Um, but we know that what happened was uh, was very tragic and has continued to this day. Iran has one of the most repressive governments in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, the 79's defeat, if you will, but also kind of the end of the, the long 60s, if you will, um, that really showed that a lot of emancipatory dreams, unfortunately, can end in you know, fundamentalist nightmares. Or, or in the States and here uh, where people just end up on Wall Street and Bay Street <laughs> in neoliberalism. <laughs> Speaking to Arash Azizi about his book, The Shadow Commander, which, by the way, um, Arash, as I was reading it, I'm thinking this would make a great movie. So any overtures from Hollywood yet? Well, not yet, but, you know, we're waiting. So <laughs> hopefully we'll get there. Uh, just just interesting people in reading it because it's, it's you know, it's it absolutely covers a lot of terrain, but it's also an easy read and an entertaining one. Um, so let's dig into that a little bit now. Um, and by the way, uh, let me just uh, 
read what somebody said about uh, you. So this is Christopher Davidson, who's author of Shadow Wars at the back. Uh, he describes this book as extensively researched and drawing on a vast range of sources. This is the definitive account of one of the Middle East's most powerful, ambitious, and enigmatic figures, essential reading. And he's talking about, of course, uh, the commander Soleimani, who in January 2020 was um, was killed by, assassinated by the U.S. So, so talk about this man. Why him? Why did you focus on him? You know, for me, Soleimani was, uh, was interesting primarily for one reason. I'm always interested in figures who go beyond their own nations, right? It, it doesn't have, you know, nation is really the true sacred principle of our times. Um, so it's very... Uh, usual for people to say fight in their national armies, but how is it that someone is able to put together um, people of many different nationalities um, and you know field armies? Um, you know how how do you how is it that someone can you know an Iranian can recruit people in in Pakistan and put them you know in armies in Syria you know to fight for Iran? It's, it, you know how how do you do that? So that's why I, I was had some sort of a you know sinister fascination with him, and of course we on the left we have great traditions of fighting across the nations like the Spanish Civil War. But the reality is we also have it on the other side and the right, as the you know rise of um, ISIS also shows. So this is this is what this is how my interest in Soleimani um came about as someone who was able to organize people of different nationalities in a in a in a army that uh, worked in many different countries, you know, maybe half a dozen countries or more um, at different times. And, you know, he grew up in very modest, uh, had very modest beginnings. So maybe talk a little bit about his, his you know, rising through the ranks. And, and I have to say that it, it sort of reminded me a little bit, I mean, just uh, because we share this fascination with, uh, as most lefties do, with the Russian Revolution. But there's a, there's a little bit of Stalin in him. <laughs> but, but talk about his, his, his coming up the ranks. That's right. Um, so Soleimani... Uh, you know, grew up in this in, the, in Kerman, a province in southern Iran, where my mother is also from, which you know really helped me really uh, sort of with research because you know, I would find facts about Kerman um, and and people who knew Soleimani when he was grown up. But he he grew up uh, really in a small village, um, and he was sort of part of the tribal margins of Iran. And as a young man, he moved to Kerman, which is a sort of provincial uh, center. Um, and it's, you know, yes, he, he did have a very modest upbringing, as you mentioned. What is always fascinating for me, I love biographies. I'm a big fan of biographies, you know, reading and, and hopefully writing more. Um, it's this fascinating question of how people are both made by history and they make them themselves. So someone like Soleimani, if, if you look at a lot of motivations in his early life, was he just wanted to get out of the village that he was in and um, see the bigger world, broaden his horizons, right? So which is how he ended up in Kerman, and which is how, as a young man who had, was not really a particularly devout Muslim, had no role in the revolution of 79. Like most Iranians, when the revolution happened, um, he was someone from the provincial margins who had some fascination and interest, had went to a couple of his speeches, but really didn't have much of a role. But it, after the revolution and after the founding of the Islamic Republic in 79, it's when so you know, the new regime um, goes and asks to recruit people to fight its internal enemies and then fight the external enemy, i.e. the Iraqi uh, army, which had invaded Iran in September 1980 under Saddam Hussein. And this is when Soleimani finds a calling in his life. So he, you know, he goes from that modest background that he had as someone who had worked construction, who had worked um, 
different jobs and he had finally found sort of a decent job with a water water organization in the in the province that he was at he becomes a soldier he joins the new militia that the islamic republic had built to defend itself and really he builds his life so it's really a story of um how these people from the margins found the new calling in the militias of this nascent republic and talk about his conversion his israel sort of conversion to islam and particularly a variety of Islam. I, of course, you know, most people know that my day job right now is as a United Church minister in a, in a church. And I'm always fascinated by, in any uh, faith, uh, this this move to the right, um, a move to fundamentalism, a move to, you know, the more, what I would describe broadly as repressive ends of, of the faith spectrum. Um, how did that cease this young man? What was there for him? Like, why was that so attractive? That's a fascinating question. I think the real story here is that, um, as I said, he wasn't particularly religious, but um, he sort of just had sort of a folk religion, if you will, that you just do in every in every society. Like you grew up with certain folk stories about the heroes, um, about you know the saints and the martyrs. And Iran, the majority religion in Iran is Shia, which is about you know 90 percent of Iranians are Shia, more than ninety percent. Um, which is a minority sect in the in the Islamic world, and, and the Shia sect is full of these stories of saints and martyrs, and um, you know, really, they are beautiful stories. So the the real story of how Soleimani um, converts, if you will, to this brand of revolutionary Shia Islam that really bases itself uh, on these stories, um, is that the militia that the Republic builds, i.e., the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps or the IRGC, um, what it does is that it really, um, it knows, you know, it sees, it has a chip on its shoulder against Marxism and against different brands of revolutionary thought that that were much more sophisticated. And, you know, it, it sort of had, inferior, the, the Islamists of the IRGC had an inferiority complex towards it. So instead they build this kind of, um, this brand of Islamism that is very anti-Zionist, hatred of Israel is, is one of its centers. Um, and that it, that it bases itself on some sort of a social conservatism, but also tries to uh, build an ideology out of this, um, as I said, focus stories of uh, you know, martyrs and heroes. And for someone like Soleimani, um, this is a become sort of an accessible and um, accessible um, ideology um, that you know he could already be, because he you already know the stories of of uh, you know of, of your religion and of, of your upbringing and you use them um to um to prop up this um this ideology of a new republic and but Soleimani was also never really that much of an um you know that much of it he wasn't a political person basically he was a soldier and he was fascinated with the military uh, all his life it this is in itself a, perhaps a interesting question of how is it that some people become so fascinated with you know with martial life if you will and with military um and uh you know they really dedicate all their life um uh, um to this of course it has goals but um there is a there is I'm, I'm pretty sure if Soleimani met with like a you know top Israeli general they could babble for some hours about you know and they would kind of maybe perversely enjoy a conversation about military affairs that might be um boring to to you or I Speaking to Arash Azizi about his book, The Shadow Commander, about uh, one of the targets of U.S. aggression, I suppose you would say, uh, but certainly they assassinated him and, and because of his prominence in the Iranian world, and not just the Iranian world, but the world. Um, so uh, we're, we're speaking about this, and, and of course, a byproduct of this is 
the Middle East. Um, so just to go back to the, the revolution, um, and as a socialist, I mean, this must have figured, even though you were born, of course, after it, um, this must have figured very largely in, in your upbringing and, and tales of it and analysis of it. What did the left, where did they drop the ball on that? Why did that go awry? I think the, the fact of the matter is that when 1979 happened, you know, you know what's the left's biggest problem with the strategy, right? I mean, we don't, uh, you know, uh, we have great goals, but we don't always adopt good strategies for them. In 1979, Iranian leftists actually adopted a very different range of strategies from trying to accommodate the Islamic Republic and be sort of, you know, loyal opposition inside to those who went uh, and overhead and fought it. Um, but I think um, the reality is that in the previous period, there was this catch-all, um, let's all be together, um, you know, under a leadership that, and, you know, they hadn't differentiated enough um, inside the ranks of the opposition. That's why um, when push came to the shove, they, uh, you know, they were left defenseless um, after, after the revolution and they were not able to really seriously read San Khomeini. Uh, although I have a lot of sympathy because, as I said, a wide range of different uh, strategies were... Um, were tried and um, none of them really, um, you know, none of them really worked. Backed by a reactionary, uh, uh, reactionary repressive ruler like Khomeini, who also had uh, mass backing. So it, it was a very tough time to be a socialist in Iran in those days. And of course, tens of thousands of socialists were massacred and killed um, and by the Islamic Republic in its first decade in Iran and in other places where Iran used the parties it founded, like Hezbollah in Lebanon, to murder. Um, uh, Communist Party uh, activists and intellectuals and members in Lebanon, which finds, you know, which, you know, one, one finds it very surprising then that some leftists unfortunately show some sort of sympathies to the regime in Iran or Hezbollah or the, or the Bashar Assad regime in Syria, where literally their foundation um, has long been soaked in blood of, of leftists and socialists in the region who they killed in their thousands. Let's talk about Syria since you mentioned the word, um, because uh, that that has struck me as well. I mean, the support for him is 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 astounding to me, and I've heard it out of the mouths of so-called socialists. Um, uh, so I, I suspect that there's a, sort of an aligning there with with what um, with Russia still, or you know, how would you? Wh where is that coming from? Where is that support coming from? I mean, some people have a. Uh, you know, the, the, the reality is that the Western left for a long time has had a unreflexive anti-Americanism um, that sometimes it worked during the Cold War to a certain degree because the, the boundaries were clear. I mean, if Vietnam, on one side, you had people fighting for national liberation, on one side, you had the United States Army, which had backed the colonial powers in France. So it was easy. Um, but unfortunately, you know, you need to adopt your, um, your perspective to the world as the world changes. And um, an anti-Americanism, at any rate, can never be a principle of the left. The left should be against imperialism, not against any nation, right? It should be imperialism of, 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 against imperialism of all sorts. Now, it's really strange, for example, now, if you read uh, some of the leftist takes um, in America, even in American liberal magazines, actually, they're so, ref they're, they're ref they're, it's very good that they're suspicious of American power, but it looks like when it comes to China or Russia, um, or other, like say, repressions of say Nicaragua, they are very, you know, they're very hesitant to say anything, or they're even reflexively uh, on the other side. Basically, they support anything that the that the United States opposes. Um, 
So unfortunately, that's how some people um, take the positions that they take on Syria. Also, we should, although we should also not exaggerate uh, how many there are, because I think there's a very small part of the FT. Now, today, the vast, uh, I think, the, you know, most, especially in the United States, but also in other countries, the main sentiments of the left is with democratic socialism as representative of people like Bernie Sanders and like yourself in Canada. Uh, talking to Arash Azizi about his book, The Shadow Commander, and, and we, we veered, as we will in this conversation, Arash, but back to you and your family left Iran. Talk about that. How did you end up out of Iran? Uh, well, I've, uh, you know, uh, as, as a young man, I had traveled in, uh, in different places. Um, I, you know, uh, I went to Malaysia for a little while, um, but I was in Iran. Um, I was in Iran um, until my early 20s. Um, when I had a lot of run-ins, if you were, I was, I was a sort of a Marxist activist in Iran. I had a lot of run-ins with the law, if you will. I was always, um, you know, I was on, always on the threat of being arrested. And many of my friends, almost actually all my comrades were arrested. Um, and uh, so my mother kind of forced me to go to Canada. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's how we moved to Canada um, in, in my early 20s, in 2008. And... Uh, yeah, I'm. You know, I've lived in other countries since then. But it was. But you know, I, when I left Iran, I really didn't think that I wouldn't be back for so long. Especially when you're a young revolutionary, you usually don't have a sense of perspective. You think the the enemy, which was the Iranian regime at the time, would be gone in five years. Well, it's been uh, twelve years, but it's not gone yet. But uh, we don't lose our hope. So we will get rid of them one day. Yeah. Um, and okay, so back to back to Soleimani. Um, so uh, and his role. Uh, so I mean, this is this is an army man um, and noted for that and used for those skills by the by the Islamic regime. So um, so why? I mean, I, you, you go into this in your book, but why did he become such an international figure? And why? What was he deemed worthy of specific assassination and kind of you know, you know, very out and public um, way by the U.S. government. Well, I have to say he was very good at what he did, which was, you know, it's something to be a military man, but um, he was very charismatic and he was able, as I said at the beginning, to raise an international army. You know, it's one thing for people to die for their own national armies, but it's something else when you're able to put them in sort of an ideologically organized uh, international army. Although, how did he do it has a very sinister story behind it, of course, um, that, that we shouldn't forget. Um, and that's sectarianism, i.e. The, uh, the hatred stoked between the two main sects of Islam, i.e. Shias and Sunnis, which really heightened um, in the 2010s. Um, of course, this wasn't, this wasn't only the work of Iran or Soleimani. In fact, the regime in Iran is not necessarily actually sectarian, but it's, you know, um, it's, you know, it's, it's not sort of fundamentally sectarian um, in, in a sense that it, it is more cynical. It uses sectarianism when it needs to. But um, many events happened uh, in the last 20 years, especially after the fall of Saddam Hussein in Iraq following the U.S.'s invasion of two, in, in 2003, which really stoked sectarian hatred in the region. And Soleimani used that. Um, and Soleimani found out very well that, well, you know, it's hard to organize. It's very hard to you know, ask people to join an ideological army based on some sort of a stale anti-Zionism that, you know, no one took seriously. But you could take a, but you know, you could build a, a much more attractive um, way for people to join you if you base it on sectarian hatred. So unfortunately, he, he has talked to sectarian hatred. And of course, the other side 
did as well. Al-Qaeda, ISIS, groups like this that killed Shia people, that attacked Shias everywhere they found, they found them. So as a result, Soleimani was able to use his charisma um, to build an international army that included Shias from Pakistan, from Afghanistan, from Syria, from Lebanon, from, from Yemen at points, and from different places. And in fact, from, uh, you know, from Iran, of course, you know, large, all over Iran. And um, for this, he was, because he was very good at organizing Sami and moving it from one conflict to the other, um, uh, he was really deemed a threat. And one has to say uh, that a year after his killing, it's clear that even Iran doesn't even try to fill his shoes because they know he was indispensable. So, of course, the assassination was illegal according to international law. And, um, you know, Omega said it was also a very reckless act to do. We we're lucky we didn't end up in, in a war after that. But the fact is, it was effective in a sense that it has effectively degraded um, Iran's capabilities for organizing this, uh, this international um, army uh, that it has in the region that, and it then uses, by the way, to bring uh, havoc um, to many countries. And it also uses it as a reactionary force really to bolster the rule of elites in Iraq and Lebanon. And so even though it says it's revolutionary, it's actually very much pro-status quo and pro-backing of corrupt elites in Iraq and Lebanon, which have come under the anger of their own people. Uh, speaking to Rash Azizi here on The Radical Reverend, if you show, if you've just tuned in, uh, you can catch this, of course, on a podcast as well as on the radio. Um, so do uh, listen in. And do let me know what you're thinking, because I always respond to my listeners, so um, do that. Um, Rash, I wanted to, to talk about ISIS and the rise of ISIS and how um, how his life touches on that as well. Um, your shadow commander, the shadow commander. Um, talk about ISIS. Well, so ISIS um, came to be really um, in the chaos that uh, that ensued in Iraq following the 2003 invasion. Now, ISIS came about 10 years later, but its roots goes back to there. So what basically happened was that after the U.S. foolishly invaded Iraq in 2003, um, you know, the whole place imploded, right? The, the whole place imploded um, and different communities um, um, in Iraq were set against each other. And the Al-Qaeda, which is a terrorist organization that had died in 9-11, uh, started organizing in Iraq for the first time um, very seriously. Um, and the Al-Qaeda in Iraq, led by a Jordanian man, Abu Musab al-Zargawi, which uh, you know, really started killings of the Shias and attacking Shia shrines um, in, in a very serious way. And really that extremist um, anti-Shia uh, force is, is, is basically the, the precursor to ISIS, if you will, which, which arises sometime later. Um, now, ISIS means Islamic set of uh, uh, basically Iraq and Syria. So this is the Iraqi part. And the Syria, the, the, the Syrian revolution when it happened in 2011, and the first reaction of Assad, the ruler there was of course to massacre his own people, to, to put them down and, and, to, and a civil war broke out. But the other sinister thing that Assad did was that he freed a lot of these extremist Islamist fundamentalist prisoners in Syria. He freed them from prison. So they were able, to um, come out and reorganize and join up with these extremists in Iraq. And um, they, they, they formed a new organization called ISIS because they were able to link up from Iraq and Syria. The two countries are 
um, you know, they have they have borders. In fact, their border is part of the vast Syrian desert. So it's sort of an ungoverned space. And they were able to build a new monstrous organization that took power at, at its height. It took power in Mosul, which is one of Iraq's biggest cities, and Raqqa, which is one of Syria's biggest cities. So it became this monstrous organization that, of course, then with the support of the international community um, has been largely uh, defeated. And uh, the international community, let us not forget, the main partner that it had on the ground were the uh, leftist courts, socialist courts um, organized um, in Syria um, and in Iraq, but mostly in Syria um, under what is today called the Syrian Democratic Forces or SDF. And they were the ones who really truly fought ISIS um, in cities like Kobani, which you know many called the Stalingrad of our times because they really stood up to these ISIS fascists and, and beat them up with, with international support. Um, and you see, sometimes, sometimes the United States can be on the right side, one has to admit. And here, and here it was because it supported um, the fight of the SDF against ISIS until Trump, of course, basically withdrew that support. Um, so sorry to get into the complex map of the you know, crazy Middle East, um, but, but the last thing I'd say here is that um, really the main, the, the main story here is the, the consequences of Iraqi invasion of 2003 have been continued to haunt the region. Um, and this is what happens when you just collapse an entire state and uh, you, know, you, you provide the ground for, for many nasty things. And the rise of ISIS was one of them. Thankfully, it's been mostly defeated, although um, it is still continues here and there, and also has forced new converts and forces in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, one of the interesting things about uh, that comes across in your book is is allegiances and how they shift. Um, at some point, you know, enemies become friends and friends enemies, and this kind of shifting uh, of of allegiances, which which uh, Soleimani seems to navigate pretty pretty you know dexterously. Um, so I was I was fascinated by that aspect of it too. Uh, again, speaking to Rasha Zizi about his book, The Shadow Commander, I want to talk uh, about your sources for the book because that's it. You know, it reads as, as if you're speaking to his brother, his driver, his aides. That you're in the room when he's there with Putin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Talk about how you got your sources a little bit, or as much as you can, Arash, for the book. Of course, yeah. So um, you know, this is kind of a fun part of I've been a journalist. I've kind of defected journalism for academia. So, you know, now I read about dead people mostly. But um, when I do more journalistic things, this is the fun part of finding people and talking to them. I think, um, you know, well, the process of finding someone's phone number or, or a contact, I mean, that's, you know, that is a process. And those of us who are journalists, we sort of know how to do it. You know, you know someone or you know someone who knows someone. But the fun part begins when you talk to someone. And I think uh, it's important how to, you know, show interest in their side of the story and 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 what you know how they want to, you know, do, tell a story that, um, uh, you know, that documents their role in history. Um, the tricky part, of course, is that you can't believe whatever you're told, right? Because they say all sort of tall stories. For example, one of the stories that many people who um, who had worked in the Quds Force with Soleimani would tell me was that he was personally in Gaza during the Israeli attacks. I mean, many people told this to me. Um, and it's, I mean, it's patently, it, it's very unlikely, let's say, to be true. It's very unlikely that he would have sneaked his way past, you know, Egypt and Israel into the little, into the, in a small Gaza Strip, um, and especially under, you know, on, under Israeli attack. Um, 
So, uh, you know, this is the hard part, perhaps, to know which part to, uh, you know, which part to, you know, which part to keep and which part to discard. And it's the job of a historian always, whatever your sources are. Um, but for things like Putin Soleimani meeting, um, I'm actually happy to say that the book came out in November, um, and I based my um, account of the meeting on both sides actually, because I knew someone on the Iranian side who I don't think I don't think he had taken part in the meeting, but he was aware of its content. But also someone on the Russian side um, that that I got to that I got to interview an advisor of, of Vladimir Putin. Um, but since then, accounts that have been published actually by say Hassan Nasrullah, the leader of Hezbollah confirm the uh, account that is given in my book. But of course, that's always the fear you have that, um, you know, you were duped by a source or, you know, maybe they told you something that you were misled. But I've, I've tried to use my own judgment. And I'm also generally on the conservative side of this historian. By conservative, I just mean that I usually don't believe tall tales. And I think, you know, uh, we know a lot of what's going on already. And, uh, you know, the, we always think there's some crazy conspirators that are going behind the door. But I think right now in the world, there are just so many people, so many leaks, so many sources that we often know the main um, the main trends of a story are usually there. It just takes the patience to to look and, and find it. I have to say, though, that in your book, that's what makes it, uh, you know, so enjoyable in a sense is, is hearing the firsthand accounts, feeling like you're in the rooms when uh, decisions are made and uh, choices are made. Um, I want to talk about the reaction to the book now. Uh, what has that been like? And in particular, uh, you know, you're going into some some places that, especially as an Iranian, that, um, you know, have you had had some blowback? Have you had some pushback from other Iranians? Have you have had you had threats? <laughs> what what does it look I mean, like? <laughs> I mean, yes, yeah, sure. You know, it's not a you know, yeah. Your life as a sort of Iranian socialist is always full of threats, and always you know, um, I usually get called different names every day by all sides. I mean, I'm not a special. I guess everyone does, and now there's Twitter, so everyone knows how to go and shout at um, whoever they don't like. But I mean, uh, yeah. So the sources close to Soleimani, actually, sort of the sources to the, close to the Iranian government and very prominent ones, like, uh, you know, they had two reactions. First of all, of course, they said this book was a lie and full of fabrications and all that, but they, you know, they couldn't, no one actually named what was fabricated in the book. So <laughs> I'm still waiting. Um, but they also, I think they blamed their own side for, you know, why is it that the first biography of Soleimani needs to be written, you know, by a Marxist, uh, you know, and not by a supporter of, of, of Soleimani? So it's, you know, they, they could have written their book. They actually have published thousands of things, really, and they put so much of the resources of Iranian society toward this, but they're not, you know, they're not really good at uh, publishing, uh, you know, books like this. They're, they're sort of turned out hagiographies. Other than that, the reactions have been, um, yeah, the reactions that they, I'm happy with the reviews, most of the reviews have been very kind. And, um uh, you know, the publisher is happy. My mother is happy, which is obviously the most important review. And I should say the most surprising reaction uh, probably that I've had um, is from Paulo Coelho, the famous Brazilian writer who uh, tweeted that he read the book and he loved it. So I was, uh, I never thought Paulo Coelho, who when I grew up in Iran had a very serious cult following in Iran. And I think in Canada and other countries as well with the books like Alchemist, 
I never thought one day he'll read my book, but you know. It's amazing and, and wonderful and, 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 and totally a good note to, to end on. I've been talking to Arash Azizi about his book, The Shadow Commander, and I, I absolutely recommend it. it. Took me a while to get it, of course, COVID. Um, if you don't order it through Amazon and you go through your local whatever bookshop, uh, which I suggest you do. Um, but I mean, I did get it and it's absolutely worth the wait. So um, do pick it up, do read it. It will give you a backdrop. We could have talked for another half an hour about what's in it um, but time being what it is on radio I'm afraid we have to end it here um, Arash it's been a pleasure as always and uh, and good luck and let us know when it becomes a movie because you know I want to like stay in a wing <laughs> of the Hollywood mansion <laughs> thank you so much Sherry and I have to say I'm a big fan of Radical Reverend I listen to it religiously if you forgive the pun and, uh, <laughs> and uh, thank you very much it's an honor to be here take care thank you Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, everyone. Uh, it's a snowy day, wherever you are. And this is your host, Sherry Jadovo. As always, I'm excited about today's show because we have Skylar Williams on. We haven't had him on for a while on the Radical Reverend Show, and we really want to get caught up on what's happening at 1492 Landback Lane. Many of you out there in listener land know about 1492 Landback Lane, but it seems to have fallen off the radar of mainstream media these days. So we're going to do our bit in amplifying uh, this particular struggle. So Skylar, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. So it's been, I, I saw a note, it's been, what, 200 days plus some now since the occupation? We're approaching 220 now, yeah. 220. Uh, so just for maybe those listeners out there that don't know what we're talking about here, can you go back to the beginning and kind of talk about how this all started? Land back lane in a nutshell, absolutely. Um, uh, so July 19th was the, uh, the day we came into, uh, it was 1535 Mackenzie Road. Uh, we came in on a Sunday evening, uh, set up camp. We uh, started an occupation there that day. Uh, we set up a camp, we made a fire, we had dinner together and started what was a peaceful occupation of our lands. And uh, who are we, Skylar? Who are you? We are Haudenosaunee people from Six Nations. So that's uh, Mohawks and Senecas, Oneidas, Cayugas, Onondagas, uh, some Tuscaroras from, uh, from Six Nations. And so we uh, went in the land back lane and uh, and uh, through the next couple of weeks, we got word that there was an injunction that was filed against us without notice of, notice to us, uh, which was uh, kind of forcing the hand of the OPP, who had had a bit of a standoffish approach to us being there for those first 17 days, I think, by the time the uh, first raid happened. And so they raided the camp on, uh, on August 5th uh, to enforce that injunction. Uh, as we said, we weren't going to be leaving and uh, uh, there was that morning, they came early in the morning on August 5th and, uh, they came and read the injunction allowed to everybody. And, uh, we said that we weren't leaving. Uh, they came in and arrested nine of us, uh, uh including myself. And, uh, 
one guy was tasered in the neck and in the head. Another guy was uh, dragged along the pavement. Uh, I seen a young lady picked up quite high in the air and slammed into the into the dirt. I mean, it was it, it was uh, an amazingly amazingly brutal arrest. Though those uh, for those folks, um, that was August fifth, and uh, when I was released from custody that afternoon. Uh, I was asked, like, do you know what's going on on the ground down there right now? And I said, no. I said, what's going on? And she stuck this phone in my face. That, and I was trying to remember trying to see who it was that I was talking to. And, and so finally, when I could focus on the phone, that she showed me, like, there was some fires going on on, on the highway, on the train tracks, on, on all of our routes into the camp because the OPP had blocked off any access to the camp from anybody that was trying to come and render any kind of aid that day and so after that the uh uh i got out and uh, we had a little group of us got together that kind of the original crew and had made a decision that we were going to go back to land back lane and so much like we did on the first day we rolled right back in the front door and drove in and uh uh, started putting our camp back together. Uh, the OPP had torn a bunch of our stuff and scattered things about, and and so yeah. So then we and we those were the only four hours that our people were not on the land at Landback Lane. Um, and uh, after about a month of barricades, just shy of a month of barricades being up around the camp, uh, we started advocating for those barricades to come down. And so lots of community consultation, lots of talk with everybody and everybody uh, started to feel like that was, and there was a lot of pressure from the OPP to, to, to uh, reduce those barricades and, and scale back. And so a lot of folks from Six Nations wanted to see those, those barricades come down. And so we, we did that again, uh, the end of August, and we continued our peaceful occupation of our lands. On October 22nd, uh there was a permanent the injunction the interim uh interim injunction that was was granted uh, uh in early august had then become permanent i was uh barred from participating in any of those court proceedings uh we had done everything we possibly could to to, to mount the case that we did uh lots and lots of folks pulled together to be able to, to fight to fight that injunction, I, I was self-represented in that. Um, but again, like I've, I, I'm I'm quite lucky in my friends. I've I've got some amazingly smart friends and lawyers who who uh, managed to to help pull pull me pull me along through that to show me exactly what it took to uh, to fight this civil case. Um, all in the end, though we we were barred for any from any participation. Uh, this is something we have appeal an appeal in before the Ontario Court of Appeal now. Uh, so hopefully we'll hear back from that um, uh, in the spring here. So I'm talking to uh, Skylar Williams from um, uh, the occupation at 1492 Landback Lane, one of the leaders there. And Skylar, just to, you know, again, in case somebody doesn't know about this occupation, and they should, but in case they don't, um, the original reason, I mean, there's a developer building properties on your land, right? Yes, no, there is a 1,400 home development being uh, that has been 
you know, granted to them by, you know, Haldeman County to a lesser degree has given the permits to, to and bylaw changes necessary in order to, to build these 1400 homes right to the doorstep of our community on unceded Haudenosaunee territory. First of all, congratulations on hanging in as long as you have. I'm sure it hasn't been easy, especially in the cold weather. You mentioned the legal case. What are you hoping out of the appeal? Uh, so the appeal isn't um, appealing the final decision. The appeal is my barring from those proceedings. Right. And so, yeah, so we're, we're hoping to get that back before a judge uh, again to restart that process of that injunction. Because I, the, the idea that an Indigenous person can't defend themselves in, in an Ontario court is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And if you're- Shocking. Yeah. So going forward, where's the developer in all this? What are they doing? And what's the township doing? I mean, what are you getting in terms of response from them? The developer has been somewhat quiet in all of this, except for the, the injunction stuff. They've, they, they've, not, they've not issued any public statements. They haven't done anything in order to, you know, kind of push the development along. Um, but the uh, Haldeman County mayor, on the other hand, and has been quite boisterous in his... Um, uh, I don't know. He he re, he's not a big fan of mine, anyways, and so uh, and some of the other folks down here on the land that have that have been here now for you know the last seven months, and so he he makes sure to uh, encourage the police the uh, further police violence. Uh, most recently, I think three or four days ago, I released a statement that you know that uh, police need to be moving in because we had just opened the roads again after October twenty second. Um, when we were barred from participating in the court process, the OPP set up at kind of the back way into our camp and uh, said that they were going to be arresting people. And so when uh, somebody from our community came up there and really did not like the fact that they were there and they shot at them, they tasered them, uh, tried to exact an arrest. And again, you know, hundreds of people came out and pushed them off our lands again and that's when uh, we saw uh, community folks uh, uh, dig up roads, uh, dug up highway, dug up railway. And so uh, our permanent barricades were then set up around all of the access points to the camp. And we were no longer allowed in. So the Ontario government and the federal government, where are they at in this? Um, you know, Ottawa's a long way away from Six Nations. So, you know, it's, it's been seven months now and maybe, maybe they're getting close. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. The lack of reaction is shocking and the reaction you're getting is shocking. Just may I say that. Um, it's horrendous. Uh, for all the talk of nation to nation negotiations that goes on in the Prime Minister's office, you're in conservative territory there, so I don't think too much is happening these days around you. But certainly the hope was that federally, you know, there'd be some kind of action. Nothing? You know what, even talking about, like, uh, in, in Doug Ford's, um, uh, they've just pushed forward the, uh, the, plan, the Planning Act and the Space Place to Grow Act, which forces and incentivizes uh, settler development up and down the Grand River yet again. Like the, we talk about, the, you know, 200 years ago when government was pushing, when the Brits at the time were the ones pushing, you know, further settlement of the Grand River in, in Indian country. And, and now, the fast forward 200 years, we have, we have act, an act like the Place to Grow Act that actually incentivizes massive, massive development up and down the Grand River. 
and so like this is like this is an absolutely ridiculous thing that like people talk about uh indigenous issues as if they're something that is 200 years ago 100 years ago that you know that we just need to get over you know that residential schools that may have just closed 20 years ago but we need to get over that you know like this is something that happened last year this is something that is happening currently that we are incentivizing massive development without any consultation, without any accommodation from indigenous communities. And certainly when we're talking about the additions to reserve stuff, like reserves just are not able to grow. And so that's all we're asking for. We're not asking to you know, evict all of the uh, settler communities up and down the Grand River. We've never asked for that. We've never said we need, we want to be kicking out, you know, white people and uh, any settlers that, that, that have, you know, uh, set up along the Grand River. We're saying that we want an opportunity to be able to grow and thrive just like every other big city or small town. Like every big city and small town across the country has been able to grow exponentially over the last hundred years, except for reserves. Reserves are the only ones that have gotten continuously smaller. And so, and this is a problem for us. And I think it needs to be a problem for all Canadians to say, you know what, our government needs to honor those, those treaties that were made with our ancestors. Because those ancestors that made those treaties paid for those with the blood, sweat, and tears of our ancestors. And so we need to, we need to honor that. We need to be able to not be the generation that disrespects those graves from uh, all of this development. Yeah, speaking to Skylar Williams here, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show, uh, either on CIET 89.5 FM or on podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get podcasts. And it's absolutely my delight today to have back uh, Skylar Williams from 1492 Lambback Lane, which is not that far from the GTA, folks. It's a drive away, uh, Caledonia. Now, Skylar, I want to spend the remainder of our time together talking about what you need and what we can do what the response should be for you. You sound like you've got some legal help. That's good. What other kind of help do you need? Like you're out in the cold there in an occupation. You've been there for 220 days. We want to be of some real material assistance out here in, uh, in settler country. So what do we do? You know what, like, and uh, for a lot of folks, like, and certainly understanding, you know, we are in the middle of a, pand- you know, an uh, international pandemic. And so um, there, there, there are still lots of ways. I mean, uh, folks that are wanting to come out, you know, we are asking people to, to isolate beforehand and, and because I mean, um, we, we just, yeah, we, we as a community at Landback Lane cannot, you know, afford to have, uh, that come into our, into our, into our, our camp. Um, but at the same time, like a lot of folks still continue to bring out food, continue to, to, uh, uh, check with, check in with us to see, you know, you can find us on, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all the social media stuff and, you know, reach out. And because I mean, like, it's an issue of capacity, right? For a lot of people, capacity, like I have, you know, $20 and to be able to donate to the camp, you know, and you can do that on our email, e-transfer money to that. Other people, it's coming out and spending the day, you know, for, other other ally folks that want to come out, they've come out and spent days and weeks and months with us, and so I mean it. it it's really an issue of capacity for folks, and like, who am I to judge anybody on what their capacity is? You know, we all have families and kids and anything like that. I mean, for me, this has been seven months, and uh, you know, I have a, a bed and a family at home that I'd uh, that I'd love to be at, but it's it, this is this is something that uh, you know my kids and my family have you know, supported me through all of this. And so it's a really amazing thing to be able to, 
have a community support um, support from lots and lots of allies across the country and as well as from uh, the family that we built here at Land Beckley. So hear this out there in listener land, wherever you're listening to this show, that 1492 Landback Lane, and I'm speaking to Skylar Williams, and they need your money. That's an easy one. Um, <laughs> send that by e-transfer. That would help a lot, especially with the legal challenges, etc. So check with you, Skylar, like on a daily basis to see what other material support you could have. Absolutely. Yeah, maybe don't go rushing out there, you know, uh, in person, unless you check first see what's going on and the occupation and how many people now are kind of there permanently would you say uh it varies it varies but i mean you know there's 20 to 30 people that live on site uh, consistently and then there's you know another 20 30 40 50 that come out on a regular basis that you know come out and bring food out that and it's usually family and friends of folks that have been on the ground here for the last bit uh, but right now, all of the barricades that we had, like the roads that had been dug up that we had fortified over the last uh, several months, four months, that the, the last barricades were up, all of those barricades are now have now come down. And uh, uh, all of the roads kind of surrounding the camp now have now been opened. And so that was that has kind of been the new, new development here in the last couple of days. And so we have been... Uh, uh, doing what we can to, to, uh, to trust that the OPP isn't going to further escalate uh, the situation. It's interesting that they've backed off. It's good that they backed off. But um, what do you think? This is kind of a lull before the storm. Or are they waiting to see what's happening in the courts before they move? At some point here, they're going to start getting pressure from on high to, uh, to uh, start enforcing the warrants against myself and as well as enforcing the permanent injunction that's on the land there. And so, I mean, uh, there are still active warrants against uh, uh, me and all my friends and family at uh, Landback Lane. And so uh, at some point or another here, they're going to start pushing for, for uh, our arrests. So people are buying these houses? Like, I can't imagine uh, anybody that would want to. But, I mean, what are you hearing from the settlers? Are people backing away from this? I hope they are. Uh, yeah, they the the first phase was all was was sold out there was 212 houses that were sold and so uh but our our uh occupation started before the closing date on all of those sales so um i'm sure there will be some hoops to jump through for those folks that were uh that had bought those bought those homes but i mean they're uh the yeah they should be able to get their money back and be able to move to someplace that isn't quite as uh, contentious. What do you hope for that land? What would you like to see on that land? Well, you know what? We built, we built now nine tiny homes on the land, uh, a couple of small communal areas, a kitchen and a uh, meeting space. And so, yeah, we'd, we're not planning on going anywhere. You know, and, uh, and somebody had talked about, you know, how, well, like if you're, if you're building houses there, like, how is that any different? I said, well, we, we, we don't live quite the same as, as our Western brothers and sisters. And so, you know, that idea of covering everything in concrete and asphalt in the name of progress, like this isn't, this isn't what we do. This isn't how we live. You know, we find a way to live in relative harmony with what's going on around us. And, you know, we've, we've seen in the last seven months, the deer come back and the foxes and the, and the raccoons coming into our, into and around our camp. And so it's been an amazing gift for us to be able to see, you know, the, a family of deer come walking up to the back of our camp. Like it's, it's an, it's an amazing thing for us. And so, 
you know what, if uh, our community decides that we're going to let, you know, Mother Nature take its course and let let her uh, take the time that she needs to be able to replenish the soil there and, you know, start to grow those trees again. Because that's the thing is right now, they bulldoze every tree, every bush, every blade of grass, everything that makes, you know, our earth beautiful. You know, they plowed all that under and had, had started the process of covering it all in concrete and asphalt. And so that's not what progress looks like for us. Yeah. And that's a beautiful place to end this interview. Thank you, Skylar, so much for that vision of a better future. And hopefully this will inspire some people to step up and put their money and maybe some, you know, work uh, where their mouth is and get some help to you. Thanks so much. I've been speaking to Skylar Williams, 1492 Landback Lane. You heard it here. Money transfers always welcome. They need your money. They need your support. You could also, you know, I would suggest you phone your, your Tory MPPs too in the area and let them know you're unhappy and any federal representatives you have. You know, this is our white supremacy colonialist movement that have forced these folk into this position. So let's get busy. Thanks, Skylar. Absolutely. Thanks. Ooh.